Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And we're here again with Tom Stewart. Hi, Tom. How are we doing? We're good. Thanks for joining us for the second episode. Those who haven't heard the first episode might want to know that you are a law professor at St. Louis University. You teach evidence, and you also teach a course called Evidence and Advocacy, a combined course that we talked about in the first episode. In addition to that, you've developed a series of guides that we're going to talk about in this episode. You call them trial guides. I'll let you explain what they are. The genesis for these guides came really from my work with the Judicial College. I do the evidence update for the Missouri Judicial College, and I also do the new judge orientation, evidence overview. And I just heard story after story from judges about lawyers who have forgotten the basics of advocacy. You can call it basics, but it's not basic anymore because many people have forgotten how to do certain things in trial that we used to once think were a matter of course. So what I wanted to do was to develop a series of trial guides that would actually be at counsel table with the lawyer to serve as a reminder of how to do certain things in the courtroom that maybe the lawyer might have forgotten along the way. We've talked about this in the first episode, but it's not surprising that lawyers have forgotten how to do things in court because it's harder and harder to get into court. The resolution culture that exists out there, the pressure to resolve the case is great. And so getting courtroom experience is all the more challenging, which makes, of course, training and tools that you can use while you're in the courtroom even more important. One of the things that makes it so hard to try cases is the cost. I'm a solo practitioner at this point, and people come to you with meritorious cases. You think they should have a trial, and you can't justify it with the cost. You know, they might want $5,000 to be replenished, and I refer them to small claims court. And it's really a shame. It's really frustrating. People can't get representation at small value cases. Right. Well, there's no question about that. And the cost of litigation is a barrier of entry for a lot of claims that otherwise could have been prosecuted. Our legal clinic at SLU, St. Louis University, does a great job at trying to help those kinds of people with those kind of claims. But yeah, there's no question that that's a real barrier. So I'm looking at one of the trial guides right now in front of me, and I'll just describe this to someone who can't see it, obviously, on a podcast, but it's a pyramid. And the title is Trial Objections Overview. And of course, the traditional way of learning objections would not be to look at a picture of a pyramid. And so I thought this was really a good idea to give an image in somebody's mind It's almost like a gauntlet of things you got to get through before you get to the golden ring, which is the evidence is admitted. And that's the top peak of the pyramid. You finally got to the peak, but you have to get through some things to get there. I'll refer it back to you and have you describe the process and maybe how it relates to the graphic design of the card. Sure. So this evidence pyramid, which we call on this sheet, trial objections overview, what this really is, is an overview of evidence. When I teach evidence at SLU, I start with this pyramid and I tell my students on the first day of class, this is the sum total of everything you need to know about evidence. And they kind of stare blankly at me like, are you out of your mind? And then we spend the rest of the course kind of filling out. But here's the challenge. The challenge with the rules of evidence is this. 
how do I bring all the rules of evidence to bear instantaneously on any proffered evidence in the courtroom? I call it all the rules all the time. How am I supposed to think about offered testimony or an exhibit or whatever it is? How am I supposed to think about that in terms of bringing to bear the analysis of all the evidentiary rules that there are in that instant? And so what the pyramid is designed to do is to help organize your evidentiary thinking. You can view the rules of evidence as a constellation of stars that are not connected to one another in any way and hope you can grab a hold of one of the rules and maybe it'll work. Or you can view the rules of evidence in an ordered framework. And so what the pyramid does at the bottom of the pyramid, it starts with the question, does the evidence matter? Of course, that's relevance. If it does matter, the next question you should ask yourself in quick succession is, is it real? That is to say, is there some evidence to suggest that there's foundation for the evidence? If the evidence matters and if it's real, the default position under the rules is it should come in unless, and this is the third step in the pyramid, is there a policy to exclude? Is the evidence hearsay? Is it liability insurance? Whatever the policy to exclude is. And so if the evidence matters and if it's real and if there's no policy to exclude, then the final step on our pyramid of analysis is, is the evidence too costly? And under the federal rules of evidence, that's 403. Is the evidence simply too costly? Well, not surprisingly, by the time the evidence has reached that step in the pyramid, it's well on its way to being admitted. And the court's only going to take evidence from the jury's consideration if its prejudicial effect substantially outweighs its probative value, which makes perfect sense. After all, the evidence matters to the case. It's real. There is no other policy to exclude it. What is the likelihood that the court's going to take it? Well, it's pretty remote. So what this trial guide is designed to do is to serve as a quick reminder of an analytical framework to think about all things evidence instantly in that moment in the courtroom. And then on the back of the trial guide, I've included language in each of these categories. What does a relevance objection sound like? What does a foundation objection sound like? And so I have specific language Again, not to be read from in a courtroom, but to serve as a reminder of what certain objections actually sound like in the courtroom. And so you have that language prompt also in front of you with this trial guide. And so hopefully this will help remind lawyers of a way to evaluate quickly the evidence that's being produced in the courtroom. Tell us how many trial guides you have developed, and if somebody is interested in having a set for themselves, how would they go about doing Well, that? right now there's four. We have a trial guide on trial objections. We have a trial guide on effective cross-examination, which we can talk about. We have a trial guide on effective direct examination. And finally, there's a trial guide on opening statements. And so these are the four trial guides that I've developed so far. Again, these are front and back of heavy cardstock paper. I sell them to my students and to whoever else who wants them, Nita buys them from me for $20 for the set. If somebody had a burning desire to have them, I guess they could email me at thomas.stewart at slu.edu. I did a presentation for the Missouri Public Defenders, and they bought, I think, 70 sets from me to give to their public defender lawyers. 
my main focus here with these trial guides wasn't to write a book. I have a book, Missouri Evidentiary Foundations, which I co-author with John O'Brien and Professor M. Winkleried. Books are great, but they're not a hell of a lot of use in the courtroom in the moment. <laughs> and so what I really wanted to develop was a series of reminder guides of how to do certain things in the courtroom that could be at counsel table to help the lawyers out. There is an art to visualizing complex information, and there's been books written on how to make an effective, memorable set of rules. And I think he did a really neat job of doing this such that I don't think I'm ever going to think about evidence again without imagining the series of steps you go through. I hadn't thought about it like that. And by the way, last night, getting ready for this podcast, I decided to just sit down and read the Federal Rules of Evidence. What surprised me because that's I, pretty ambitious. Well, there's, <laughs> it doesn't take that long. That, that thought did not cross my mind. It just John, did yeah. you read the federal rules? No, of I didn't even consider reading the federal it, rules. It doesn't take long. I usually refer to them piecemeal. You know, I need this rule. I need to look up a particular thing. But when you read them as a group, they're really well written. They're very easy to read. They're not easy to apply, but the words are easy to read. And it's actually an enjoyable experience just to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, there's things you don't use all the time. I had one of my colleagues years ago make that very point to me. She's no longer on the faculty, but she said, your evidence course, that's a four hour course, right? And I said, yeah, it is. She's like, it takes like 30 minutes to read the Federal Rules of Evidence. What do you spend four hours on? <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to look at it. I said, well, there's a few permutations that we try to cover, Professor. We do our best. So. so maybe what we could do is to put you to work as a professor. I know you've done that a few times in your life. And talk about how to unfold this pyramid. Right. So the way the pyramid is shaped, the base of the pyramid obviously is the broadest, and it reflects the broadest question. Does the evidence matter? So the rule on relevance is any tendency to make a fact of consequence more or less true. That is to say, it's a very broad-based standard. So it sits at the base of the pyramid. The other thing about the pyramid is it's linear in its approach, which is to say your analysis should always start at the bottom and work your way up. If I have an objection to a piece of evidence based on hearsay, but I also have an objection because it's not relevant, start always with relevance. Relevance is an easier standard for the court to wrap its mind around. And so students all the time say, well, can I make multiple objections? I and I always tell them, of course you can. Don't make it all at once, but start with your relevance objection if you have it. If the court's not biting on that, then you can always go to a policy to exclude objection or, or some other part on the pyramid. So the pyramid is very linear in its analysis. We start with relevance. We then move our attention to foundation. The evidence doesn't have foundation. If the witness doesn't have personal knowledge, if there's not some evidence to show that the document is authentic, it's not coming in. I don't care how relevant it is. If it matters to the case and if there's foundation for the evidence, then we quickly have to analyze, is there a policy to exclude? You know, the biggest policy to exclude that comes up in trials all the time, of course, is hearsay. And hearsay is its own separate world that we could spend multiple podcasts probably boring our audience talking about. But you quickly check off, is there a policy to exclude? If there is, we make the objection at that level. And then from there, we go to the 403 cost, which is the Hail Mary kind of approach. 
courts are very reluctant, rightly so, to remove a piece of evidence based on a 403 objection. And the justification for that is obvious. The item of evidence or the proffered testimony has already made its way through the gauntlet of objections. There is no other reason to take it. And now you're asking some judge to remove it because it's too, what, too prejudicial. It hurts the case too badly. Courts are very reluctant to take evidence based on a 403 objection. So really what we're trying to do with the overview, again, is to try to give the lawyer a framework to apply all the rules all the time instantaneously in the courtroom. I mean, it's a daunting task. And if you don't have some kind of framework for analysis, as you suggest, you're just grabbing at rules that may or may not be applicable and you're trying to do it on the fly. It's a tough task. What's your next step in unpacking your pyramid to your class? I know I'm not asking you to teach your whole class here, but right. what's your approach to making even more sense of this? Well, once we give them this on day one and they look at it and they're like, I have no idea what any of this means. We spent, of course, the next 15 weeks unpacking it, right? And so we start with relevance. What is the standard? When is evidence not relevant? And we kind of work our way up. Each of these levels on the pyramid have rules applicable to them. You know, 401 for relevance, you know, 602, 901 under authenticity, whole host of rules under policy to exclude. For example, hearsay, I think this semester I will have spent some five weeks on hearsay alone. You know, what is hearsay? That takes about a half hour. And then we spend the next five weeks with all the exceptions to the exclusion, right? And so that's the problem with policies to exclude isn't the policies themselves are pretty straightforward. It's the multiple exceptions that are going to allow the evidence to, in fact, come in, even though there's a policy to exclude. And that's where we spend all our time. Is there any way to get these rules of evidence live in one's head, ready to roll, other than running through lots of hypotheticals and counterfactuals, real situations where someone's trying to get things into evidence and someone else is trying to keep it out? Well, again, we talked about this, I think, in the first episode. Having the mindset of anticipating the objectionable event. If I'm sitting at counsel table and John Simon is my opponent, God forbid, I'm anticipating when John puts a witness on the stand, certain potential objectionable moments. You know, because of the rules of the discovery, I know what John's witness basically is going to say. I know the topics they're going to talk about. I kind of know John's approach to the case. And so if I'm at all alert, well before I walk into the courtroom that day, I have thought about what likely might come up as an objectionable moment, using this pyramid to kind of guide my thinking. Conversely, good lawyers like John, in their outline of their direct examination, they know when they ask the witness, what did the woman in the red winter coat say to you at the accident scene? Objection. They know that that's likely to raise an objection. And so John's prepared with the response, right? Yes, Your Honor, that is hearsay, but it's also an excited utterance. So both John and I have anticipated each other's moves, which is why you get with the really good lawyers, you get the timely objection with appropriate grounds, and then you get the response. I just talked to a judge last week. I have so many of these war stories of lawyers who are doing it wrong. Again, not because they're bad lawyers, but because they have not been in trial. That's the problem. This is not a reflection on them as lawyers. 
It's a reflection on our culture, which means they haven't tried a case in three years. But this lawyer's entire repertoire of objections was, objection, Your Honor, you can't do that. That was the objection. And the judge wouldn't even hear a response. The judge would just say, overruled. In fact, the judge told the lawyer, and the judge was correct, under the rules in Missouri, I don't even have to respond to that objection. It's a nothing. You're making a statement that has no legal import. It's not even worthy of a ruling. I'm going to say overrule just so you don't look too bad in front of the jury. But objection, Your Honor, that doesn't matter. Objection, Your Honor, you can't do that. Objection, Your Honor, you can't ask that question. Those kinds of things are really not even worthy of a judicial ruling because they're nothing. They're not legal objections. They're not legal objections. What yeah. comes to mind when you're saying that is object to the form depositions. Yeah. Period. Object which to which the form. people say almost like a chant. Object to the form. Object to the form. <laughs> object to the form. It means nothing. It preserves nothing at all. But, you know, lawyers do it a lot. You know, in my classes, and I'm sure you've seen this, it's not like it's all cozy in a courtroom and we're all friends. It's not like Thanksgiving dinner. I shouldn't say that. Maybe there's some cantankerous families out there. but You haven't been to Thanksgiving in my house. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this, and I call it rudeness. I say, you've got to bark it out. And like you said, there's people in your class who will be somewhat hesitant. And I think part of the hesitance that I've seen is that it seems rude to interrupt somebody else talking. A hundred percent. How do you deal with that? And, and it's, you know, well, we were raised, at least most of us hopefully were raised, of how to engage in polite society. And one of the things you don't do is interrupt someone who's speaking, all right? And so we've got to find a way to work past that social inhibition. And we have to learn that, no, my job here is to assert an objection where it needs to be. And that takes place with me typically standing up and saying the word objection. Of course, what quickly should follow from that little event is the grounds. And what the court, of course, should do is to say, what's the grounds? Then the court should ask for a response. Then the court should give you a ruling. This is how we map it out. Now, we know oftentimes it doesn't happen this way. The objection starts before the lawyer has finished her question. I was in trial one time. I remember this. And I was on direct examination and my opponent got aggravated about something and he stood up and with great vigor said, objection, your honor. And instantly the court said sustained. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't give me a whole hell of a lot of guidance, does it? Right. So I had to ask for a sidebar and I literally said, because I read the record afterwards, said, your honor, you've had some kind of Vulcan mind meld with my <laughs> opponent. He said the word objection. You should saying, I have no idea what we're doing. Did somebody clue me in on what the grounds are? Because, of course, most objections I can fix. Is it a foundation objection? Is it a form of the question objection? Tell me what we're doing. Well, you know that the witness doesn't have foundation for that. So, well, no, I didn't. But actually, Judge, the witness does. And now that I know what we're talking about, I'll go back and lay some additional foundation. No problem. But we chart it out in such a way for the law students, and they think it flows in this very even kind of way in court, and oftentimes it's just a mess. Remember John, Brendan Ryan, when Brendan was on the bench? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, great judge. Brendan Ryan, he had this habit. If it was late in the day and he was tired, you would object in trial at three in the afternoon. And inevitably, his ruling was, counsel, it's getting late. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and nobody really knew what counsel, it's getting late, let's move on meant. Was that a sustain? Was it overruled? Everybody just kind of shrugged and we kind of moved on, lurched on, you know. <laughs> so oftentimes didn't even get a ruling, really. 
But, you know, trying to explain these nuances to students can be challenging. One more thing about the class. You've got to be loud. And it's not only to be heard. You've got to stop what's going on. And as you said, sometimes you hear an objection before the question is fully out. And you know why people are doing it, because I don't want you to get to that last word. And then your witness is blurting something out. That's another angle of the rudeness. Well, part of it has to do with body posture. And so when a student is seated, getting ready for cross, oftentimes they've checked out of the moment. They're busy looking at exhibits or they're talking with their trial partner. And they're really not paying attention to the direct examination because they're not standing up doing it. So it's like a detached event. And so part of my job is to say, no, even though you're seated at council table, you have to be actively engaged in that direct examination. You have to be leaning forward at council table, not kind of sitting back with your arm cocked over the chair, checked out of what's taking place. I mean, this direct examination is running over the top of your head. You better be mindful of what's taking place. And the same thing happens all the time with my students when they've completed their direct and they sit down and they've tendered the witness for cross, you can see them instantly check out. It's like, oh God, that direct, it went okay. And they're thinking about other things They're, you know, and it's like, no, you're still part of this examination, you know? So it starts kind of with your body posture, really. You've got to literally be on the edge of your seat. Once you've tendered that witness for cross, you've got to protect that witness. And if that lawyer gets a sense that you've checked out, they are going to just mow this witness down. So many things pop into my head as I'm picturing myself sitting there as happens. And it's not just trying to listen and being attentive, but a lot of times, as you guys know, they'll say something that you think, wow. And then you're starting to think about what do I do with that? It's helpful. And you're trying to formulate what you're going to ask, how you're going to build a cross-examination around that point. And then you might be missing or half listening to what's, so it's even more challenging than what we made it out to be. No question about it. You know, contrary to Hollywood, the entire purpose of a trial is to question a human being in front of other human beings. That's the purpose of the trial. Everything that we do in trial, from voir dire to opening statement to closing argument, Everything we do in trial is in support of the simple act of questioning a human being in front of other human beings. That said, what does Hollywood give us? It gives us the searing closing argument. It gives us the opening statement. It typically gives us things other than direct and cross. But direct and cross is the whole reason, to borrow a phrase, the whole reason for the season is the questioning of that person especially underrated, in my view, is direct examination. I mean, lawyers who are great storytellers and who have a dynamic opening statement and an unbelievable theme, and they carry that theme through to closing argument, and they're just a dynamic courtroom presence. And then you watch their direct examination, and it's sleepy time, man. The generation of evidence in their case, the whole reason for the case, is the most boring part of their courtroom presentation, right? And so how do we make the examination of witnesses come alive? How do we make the jury care about that part of the trial is really, I think, what distinguishes good lawyers from the Jedi lawyers. We have a lot of trouble as human beings distinguishing dangerous things from non, you know, we think about spiders and snakes, but we don't think about that things that don't look dangerous. Right. 
So I'm thinking trials seem dangerous. It's like you've got to be really wired in. And But what's probably more dangerous is witness prep, preparing your witness for that direct exam that might either be sleepy or your witness can sing to the jury and tell that story well. But you're doing that in a conference room, maybe you know a week or two before the trial. It doesn't seem dangerous. But what you're doing there is you're setting up what could be really good for your case or it could kill your case. Right. And so often that direct examination becomes the lawyer falls into this monotone reading of questions to the witness and really not even paying attention to the great responses that they're getting, not following up. I mean, so many direct examinations are just prefunctionary kind of events. And it's like, that's the whole reason we're having this trial is for you to put that witness on direct. You know, how do you bring that alive for your audience? I mean, that's really the thing. What we do as lawyers is really difficult. And I think John put his finger on it. There's a limitation in our bandwidth as far as what we can attend to. So somebody says something and you think that's a 24-hour rule that I've mentioned before on the podcast. I tell the lawyers here when I'll be trying a case with them and the next day they'll, oh, I didn't cover this or I didn't cover that with a witness. And I'll ask them the next day, what do you remember about the witness you put on like 24 hours later? And at most, people are going to remember one thing. If you can get them to remember one thing about a particular witness the next day, that's okay. Two, that's phenomenal. If you can get them to remember two things. Three, hardly ever happens. For instance, you get an expert with a 200-page CV and he's on the stand for three hours and all of this. The one thing that I would remember about that is that the defendant paid him, you know, $380,000 to prepare a six-page report. You know, something like that, where it's just one thing that overwhelms everything else. And it will. When you're talking to the jury about the witnesses that have testified, I'll even give them names. You know, it's the $300,000 witness, you know, the guy that they brought sure, or whatever. Right. And you can see the jurors don't know who you're talking about until all of a sudden you say, the guy they've paid 400 grand to come in here and tell you something that we're not right. disputing. And then you kind of get the nodding. And you're right, memorable. If it's not memorable, it didn't happen. And not just that, the jurors, a lot of them, even if they're attentive, they're not going to remember most of it. And some of them aren't really trying to be attentive. <laughs> you know, you really need to get their attention and like, okay, this is important now, right? Do something, either voice inflection or your posture or whatever to say, okay, now all hands on deck here. Let's kind of want to yes. get everybody's attention. Right. What do you want to leave that audience with at the end of that examination? Yes. And if the answer to that is, oh, I've got 15 important things. Well, no, you don't. No, you don't. Exactly. Yeah, uh, you really don't because right. that ain't going to work. And you see it on cross too, John, all the time. The lawyer will get up on cross and the first three or four minutes make some decent points. And then they feel compelled to drone on for another 20 minutes, burying their good points. Right. And it's like, oh my God, why didn't you just sit down after that fourth question? It was perfect. I have a story about Judge Shaw in federal court, Charles Shaw, who's a wonderful, wonderful man and a terrific judge. And he's since passed away. And I was trying a case in front of him three or four years ago. It was a GM case, actually. And I had just gotten done cross-examining their main liability expert. It was an engineer who had testified for him over the course of decades, multiple times, a couple hundred times. And I was about 30 minutes into the direct examination when Judge Shaw called me to the bench and said, Mr. Simon, I think you're done. <laughs> he said, you've already like destroyed him. And all you're going to do now is get people to start feeling sorry for him or they're going to forget what you, you know, he basically said, you're done. 
So I walked back from the bench and said, uh, Your Honor, no more questions. <laughs> and that was it. So He did you a huge yeah. favor. Yeah, he did. He really did. You know, and we made every point I needed to make, and I did it in about 30 minutes, and it was very effective. And you don't usually get that from a judge. Right. But uh, I was like, yes, sir, Your Honor, no yes. problem. Looks We're like done. I'm done. Looks like I'm done. So. <laughs> 100%. Tom, this has been great. We're going to close this episode now, but thank you for agreeing also to come back for one more episode. Sure. So again, if anyone is interested in a set of your trial guides, they can email you at the email you gave us earlier in the podcast. Thank you for offering that. And again, thanks for the good conversation. Sure. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.